0: We'll keep that passage open because we'll be dipping uh, into it in a few minutes' time. But in order to understand a passage like that, we need to recognize that culturally there is at least one significant difference between when Jesus lived and Greek culture and Roman culture that was around at the time of Jesus and the culture in which you and I live. Now, there are many differences, of course, uh, between the Western modern world and between the ancient world. But one of the pre-eminent sort of thoughts in our culture, one of the hangovers of what was called the enlightenment of modernity, was this idea that somehow, as human beings, we're getting better and better, and new always equals best. So whether it's your phone, whether it's a car, whether it's a computer, whether it's a house, whether it's a coat, whether it's a pair of shoes, whether it's an update to your phone, which you download and install and immediately regret having downloaded and installed because it somehow takes you to places that you did not want to go. And there were things that you were enabled to do when you had your old phone installation software, which you can't do anymore. But apart from that, new equals better. New equals best. The younger something is, the better it is. Now, there are parts of the world, even in the UK and parts of our culture, where that isn't always the case, where the same values that existed in Roman society and Jewish society and Greek society are still seen, for example, in parts of the Asian community or Afro-Caribbean community. But predominantly in our society the younger the newer something is the better the older something is it's not quite so good old equals second best old equals old fashioned old equals past it now the reality is that in jewish culture in roman culture in the ancient world in greek culture old equals better Older people were treated with respect, and dignity, and honor. As I say, it still happens in places of the world, like China, or some Asian communities, or Afro-Caribbean communities. And I have to say that the older I get, the more respect I think I deserve. (laughs) Um, And I think that the modern world is is quite frankly wrong. And those of us who are over the age of 50 deserve more respect, and more honor, and more dignity, and we are better uh, than people who are younger. The younger members of our staff don't think like that. I pray for them. Um, but the reality is that that is, that is in our, the reality of our society. But in Jesus' culture, and in the culture in which Paul was writing to a place like Corinth, the older something was, the better. One of the ancient philosophers, the Roman historian and politician Cicero, said this, the ancient times were closest to the gods. The ancient times were closest to the gods. The older something was, the better it was, the more trustworthy it was, the more reliable it was, and the more spiritual it was. So the early church had a problem that we can't actually relate to. Because one of the problems the early church had was they were new, they were the new kids on the block. And because they were the new kids on the block, that meant that they were dodgy. They were less trustworthy. They were less reliable. They were less credible than all the other ancient religions, including Judaism itself. So when people came to members of the early church, whether it's in Corinth, as we saw in that reading, or in Galatia, or or Colossae, and they said, well, to be a real Christian... You have to become Jewish first, become circumcised if you're a male, if, uh, observe the, the dietary laws and requirements, keep the Jewish law, and then be baptized into Christ in water and spirit. Then you're a real Christian, but only if you were Jewish first. And for the early church this had a lot of attraction because it it tied them in to something that was old something that was ancient something that was trustworthy something that was reliable and you can see why lots of the early church were attracted to these judaizers as they were described it was going back to their roots it was more spiritual it was more trustworthy and so time and time again in the new testament we see Paul having to explain why Jesus has superseded what went before, why Jesus was better than what went before, why Christianity was better than Judaism and all the ancient religions of the ancient world. That's going, what's going on in that passage that Andy read for us from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In that passage, Paul describes the old covenant as being temporary, the new covenant as permanent. The old covenant he describes in verses 7, 8, and 9 as being marked by death and condemnation. The old agreement between God and humanity, between God and the people of Israel, that just brought death and condemnation because no one could live up to the law, no one could keep the law, No one could keep the standards that God laid down for people. And what Paul says in Second Corinthians is, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters or on stone, came with glory, so the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory... And he's taking us back to that time in Exodus when Moses would go up into the mountain to receive the law to re- and spend time in God's presence. And when he would come back down from the mountain, the Shekinah glory, the presence of the Lord, the brilliance of Moses' face was so bright, was so dazzling, that Moses would have to wear a veil over his face to protect the Israelites from the brightness of, of the light that was coming off the face of Moses. And Paul here says, well, if Moses had to veil his face and that ministry was glorious, will not the ministry, verse 8, of the Spirit be even more glorious? And he goes on to say that something has shifted, something has happened. Now, remember, Paul elsewhere describes himself as a Hebrew amongst the Hebrews He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was born on on the best day you could be born as a Jew. He had the best Jewish education. He was a member of the Jewish elite. He was a Jew amongst Jews, a Hebrew amongst Hebrews. But here he is saying something has happened that has fundamentally shifted and changed and superseded what went before. And what has happened, what has shifted, will define time itself. From now on, time itself will be split between the time before Jesus and the time after Jesus, B.C. and A.D. The event that will split and describe history isn't a war, isn't a discovery, isn't an invention, it's a person. And that person is the person of Jesus Christ. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection defines history and splits time in two. B.C., before Christ, and A.D., after Christ. Everything is measured by the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if that former ministry was glorious and had glory in it, so bright that Moses had to veil his face, Paul says, how much more glorious... Will this ministry be that brings life and freedom and righteousness? The new covenant, he says, is greater than the old. Faces that were veiled are now unveiled. Rather than Moses being granted a special dispensation to enter God's presence... And rather than a high priest wearing special clothes, going into a special building on a special day once a year, and saying special words, and he and he alone being allowed into God's presence, now Paul says, through the ministry of the Spirit, every single believer in Christ has freedom to enter into God's presence. If we've got the Holy Spirit living inside us, if we're Christ followers then we can come freely into God's presence. We can call him Father and he calls us his children. And yes, it might happen in a building like this, but it can happen every single hour of every single day of every single week, wherever we are, because the Spirit lives in us. Worship isn't to be restricted to a special building on a special day with special people wearing special clothes, saying special words. Worship is for everywhere, every time, every day. And Paul says, where the spirit of the Lord is, verse 17, there is freedom. Now, I've heard that verse, normally used by dodgy worship leaders, who are trying to encourage us to dance or lift our hands in worship, or sing in tongues, or, and those things can be great. But that's not actually what this is referring to. What this verse, where the Spirit of the Lord is there, is freedom, is referring to, is not worship, primarily. It's not about expressions of worship. It may lead to a greater freedom in worship, but what this is, is referring to is our simple freedom in Christ. That when Christ died on the cross, when he was raised from the dead, when he ascended into heaven, he did all that so that we and all of creation might be free. And we now get the first fruits of the liberty of the children of God. So we can be free to come into God's presence. And we can, as as Richard reminded us last week, we can be free from sin and guilt and shame and condemnation because of the death of Jesus. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. That's who God is. We have freedom in Christ, freedom from sin. As we've been singing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain. We are free Now, that might lead to freedom in worship, but it should lead primarily to freedom in life. Freedom how we live our lives. Freedom how we think about the past. Freedom how we think about the future. Because we're free in Christ. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, Paul says. Our worship might be freer, it might be richer, it might be fuller. Because now we have access to the Father through the Son, by the Spirit. And our privilege as Christians is not just to worship God. It's not just to sing songs. It isn't just to savour his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his goodness. He then calls you and I as the church to call something out of the whole of creation. As Libby was reminding us two weeks ago, we get to call out the whole of creation To worship God. It's what Rich was encouraging us to do at the start. Where those verses came from. Where where we declare to the whole of creation, worship God. Or in the words of my new best mate, Tom Wright, uh, who was with us last weekend. The purpose of God is not to save humans from the world, but for the world. To enable them to be his kings and priests, ruling and redeeming creation. That's what you and I as human beings, that's what you and I as part of God's creation, as the pinnacle of God's creation, are supposed to do. We're to call out from the whole of creation that it is made to worship Him. Now that is a vision. That is a vision of what as God's people we are called to be and what we are called to do. To call out from the whole of creation that it might worship God. But what does that mean for us as P's and G's? Well, as Rich mentioned, this is the two Sundays in the, in the year. We just take a step back and we say, this is a reminder. This is who we are as a church. This is why we do what we do and, and how we do it. And that's this Sunday, uh, is one of those two occasions where we just take a step back and say, well, who are we as a church? What's the vision that God has given to us? And how is that going? So what I want you to do in the next few minutes is just update you as to where we are. And our vision hasn't changed. Our vision statement remains the same. We still believe that God is calling us to be a church that makes whole life disciples, sharing the whole of the gospel with the whole of society through Churches of Grace. Small group made up of clergy and vestry and church members went away for two or three months about two years ago. We prayed together, we listened together, and that was what we sent God calling us as a church to be and to do. To be a church that makes whole life disciples sharing the whole of the gospel with the whole of society through churches of grace. How do we do that? We do that through our four strands or, or arrows, and they're, they're symbolized by these, these four tables with objects on them at the front. So we have the discipleship arrow, if you like. Then we have social transformation. Then we have theological education. And then we have some church plants. (laughs) See what I did there? Church plants? (laughs) Thanks. Um, And the temptation, even in my thinking over the last two years, has been to think about these things as quite separate. So there's the discipleship one. And then there's the social transformation one. And then there's the theological education one, and then there's the church planting one. And over the summer, I realised that actually it's a much more helpful picture to think of it, as you can see it on the screen, as it's cyclical. One leads into the other. Our discipleship is the one where everything stands and falls. If we're not growing in our relationship with Jesus, if we're not deepening our faith if we aren't being transformed from one degree of glory to another, as Paul outlines in that passage in Second Corinthians chapter 3, then all this is worthless and actually won't happen. So this is the key one, discipleship, how we grow in our relationship with Jesus, how we're deepening our relationship with Jesus, how the image of Christ is being formed more fully in each of us where we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another that's what paul says in second corinthians chapter 3 we are being transformed from one degree of glory into another but as that happens then we believe that people change but not just individuals change society can change culture can change churches can change which then leads to theological education, want to know more about God, and then hopefully that leads to church planting. Let's go back to discipleship, just keeping Alison on her toes there. Um, Discipleship, how are we doing with discipleship? Well, there are all sorts of things that we do as a church to enable our relationship with Christ to grow. So it might be connect groups, and there are new connect groups starting up. It might be the two transforming work groups where people are being helped to think through what does it mean to be a Christian in the workplace? Then it might be our children's work or our youth work or our student work where people of different ages are being helped to grow in their relationship with Jesus. It might be our prayer ministry where we pray uh, during our services or in connect groups for each other that we might be changed from one degree of glory into another. But as I say, everything else stands or falls on this one. If we're not growing in our relationship with Jesus, then the rest isn't worth a heap of beans. So this morning, are you being changed from one degree of glory to another? That's the acid test. Can people see more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, more of the character of Jesus, in your life and my life, than they could six months ago, 12 months ago, two years ago, five years ago? Or are you still as cranky, irritable, unforgiving, unmerciful as you were six months ago? Is love, joy, peace, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit more evident in your life and it was yesterday, because that's the picture that Paul paints in Second Corinthians chapter three, of us being changed from one degree of glory to another. Now I think it is happening, because what I observe is that probably at more than any other time in the last twenty years since I've been around Ps and Gs, people. Are hungry for change not just changing themselves but to see people around them changed and that's manifested itself in social transformation and by that I don't just mean soul food that's great and that's gone from strength to strength and we feed a hundred guests every Saturday and there's over 50 of you who volunteer and serve every week just in a remarkable way But there are other ways in which church members work for social transformation. Most of you work for social transformation in your jobs. Whether it's in the health service or education or in the law. Or perhaps it's through things like Alpha where we believe that people might not be materially poor, although some will be, but all of us are spiritually poor. And then there's things like jump and bounce and babies and toddlers where we see children and families being changed. There's things like church members serving on the care van or as street pastors and people coming for counselling through our counselling service. Uh, People engaging with safe families for children or home for good or or responding even yesterday. um, There are about 30 people who are new to the city of Edinburgh who are refugees who are just being taken out for the day by, by church members. And that has taken us by surprise, if we're, we're honest. Wendy, who's, who heads up our refugee response, we had all sorts of ideas about what we might do as a church, what could we do, and we talked to the council for about nine, ten months, and their response surprised us. They said, you know what you could do for people who were refugees arriving in Edinburgh? And we had all sorts of ideas. We could do this, this, this practically. We could do that. And they said, one of the things that happens to somebody who's a refugee, and some of these people have been refugees for four years, fleeing from Syria and being moved on from place to place to place, you can help them rediscover beauty. And if I'm honest, when I heard that, I thought, is that it? Is that really what we're being called to do? Rediscover beauty? But the more I thought about it, I thought that is a gospel imperative. That's one of the things that we do as Christians is that we help people discover beauty, what real beauty is. And so whether it's taking them for an ice cream in Inverleith Park or taking them to Edinburgh Castle or taking them to the seaside, things that they have not done for four or five years. Because when you're a refugee, you haven't got the time or resources to buy an ice cream. But we can help them do that, to rediscover beauty. Or whether it's something like Josh Gilbert, one of our interns last year, who now is heading up Alpha in prisons across Scotland. And our hope and our expectation is that over the next five or six years, every prison in in Scotland might have an Alpha course. Wouldn't that be amazing? We might know somebody who can help with that, but wouldn't that be amazing if every prison in in Scotland had an alpha course and we saw people's lives being changed? So social transformation is evidence that change is happening and we want change to happen more. And then something else is changing in theological education. There's things like the School of Theology and, and a new track that's begun to like, reboot, helping people rediscover their faith and the basics of the, of the Christian faith. But finally, after eight years of work, next year, the Scottish Episcopal Institute, that's our training body to produce people who go on to become rectors and curates and associate rectors and and ordained ministers, they're going to start a different way of training people. For eight years, we've been working behind the scenes to talk to the Scottish Episcopal Church and the bishops and the Scottish Episcopal Institute to say, look what's going on down at St Melitus in London, who now have over 400 people training for ordained ministry in the Church of England. And is there any way that we could begin a partnership with St Melitus to train people differently, to lead different types of churches. And in the next month, there'll be an advert going out for a part-time tutor in what's called mixed-mode training. And it's a partnership. It's the first of its type between St Melitus and a theological institution somewhere else. And Scottish ordinands will do this mixed-mode training two days a week studying, and then four days a week on the staff of a church, so that their theological education and their spiritual and ministerial formation are being done hand in hand. So they might go and train at New College, they might do do the part-time course, but this third option of mixed-mode training I think is the game-changer in the church in Scotland. And it might start off with the Piskies, but we hope it will be opened out to other denominations in the years to come. But if we can train different types of people to lead different types of churches and train them in a different way, then the hope is that we then start to plant different types of churches. Now, church planting can be a bit controversial. People say Scotland is full of churches. Hasn't Scotland got enough churches? All around the place, different denominations are closing churches. Why are you planting churches? new churches. Well, that's true. Scotland is full of church buildings. You know, it's the old joke about the Scot who was marooned on a desert island. And because he was a Scot, he was canny and he was clever and he was inventive. And after a year, a passing ship picked, picked him up. And they were amazed to discover what he'd done in that 12 months. He'd built a house for himself. He'd built a post office And to everyone's bemusement on the ship, he built two churches. And when they said to him, why have you built two churches? He said, it's simple, I'm Scottish. That's the one I go to, that's the one I don't go to. (laughs) Now, of course, Scotland is full of churches, and it's full of church division. We know that. But there's a difference between division and diversity. Division is bad, diversity is good. The reality is that we live in a a nation where only 5% of the population go to church anymore. We are officially, as Scots, an unreached people's group. 95% of Scotland is not in church on a Sunday. So we're going to need a whole host of different types of churches to reach different types of people. Now it is different to England, it's more complex in Scotland... But it can be done. Just two years ago, we released Dean, who was our curate at the time, to plant a church graft into Fife. And just this week, he sent me an email, completely unprompted. It said this, Last Sunday, I walked into our school in Inverkeething after taking the traditional services at St. Cerf's and St. Columbus. I saw 20 children in the children's groups at All Souls Fife And heard 60 adults worshipping. It made my heart warm knowing this had not been there before. I hope you know that all your support and the support of P's and G's has been appreciated so much in the advice that you've given and the resources that you've shared with us. That's a church of 80 that was not there two years ago that has been planted and grafted alongside the existing congregations. And as I thought about church planting this week, it struck me that a number of things are happening across the city and beyond. So, for example, did you know that Destiny Church now have four locations across Edinburgh? King's Church have just planted another congregation into Livingston. St Mungo's in Balerno have planted a congregation this month into Livingston as well. Thomas Dean, is known to quite a few of us from Central, he's just taken over Stenhouse Baptist. The Free Church of Scotland are planting churches. So yes, churches are being closed, buildings are being made redundant, but at the same time there's a whole infusion of new church plants that is beginning across Scotland and in Edinburgh. And for about the last year, Rich and I have been talking, and I told you about this in June, that Rich senses this call to plant a church, to plant something. It may not be geographical. It may be sociological. It may not be into a geographical area. It may be into a type of or part of society. We don't know yet. It may be risky. It may be experimental. Maybe a bit edgy. We don't know what it's quite going to be and how it will look. We don't exactly know where it's going to be yet, but one of the things Rich wants to do is, is to build relationships with local churches and local Christians so that we're not perceived to be P's and G's coming in with all the answers, but that we build out of a place of love and grace and really good relationships with local churches. We don't, certainly don't want it to be a church where, if you like, the rich people or middle-class people come to P's and G's And people without material wealth go to this church plant. That's not what we're aiming for. This will be a church for the poor and of the poor and with the poor and alongside the poor. It will have social transformation at its very heart. And we will ask 60 or 70 of you at some point to go and be with Rich. But we want it to be another flourishing, growing congregation with hospitality and welcome and worship at its very heart. So please pray for Rich and for Jenny, for for me and the vestry, for the bishop, as we have discussions over the next few months and try and tease out where it is that God is calling us to plant this church. But one thing we're very certain of, and Rich is certainly certain of this, this cannot be Rich's church plant. In the same way that this cannot be my vision. Most of the verbs in the New Testament are plural. They're not singular. And we get into problems and we try and apply them individually. They are meant to be applied corporately to all of us. So this church plant that happens has to be P's and G's church plant. We have to own it as a church. And this vision can't be my vision. Occasionally I hear that in the run-up to... It's vision Sunday, or even on vision Sundays, people say, "Are you going to share your vision with us?" I said, "No, I'm reminding you of what your vision, of what our vision is as a church. This is what God has called us all to, if we're part of P's and G's. And that's where that picture postcard comes in, that you were hopefully handed as you came in this morning. Hopefully, you got it in the notice sheet, or it was a, it's around you." And it should have had this picture on. And some people have looked at it already and gone, what's that picture? Have you got that picture? That's it. And you look at it on the back and it says, together we're a beach. And you look at it on the front and you think, what the heck is that all about? If you look just at the picture on the front, the picture on the front are grains of sand their grains of sand magnified 250 times. Each one of them is individual. Each one of them is unique. Each one of them is different to the others. Each one of them, to varying degrees, is beautiful. That sand magnified 250 times you get loads and loads and loads and loads of them, and they form a beach. And that, I came across that picture last week and thought, that's actually a really good picture of, of the church. We'll ignore the story that Jesus told about building a house on sand. We'll talk about that tonight. <laughs> but together, we're a beach. Together, we're the grains of sand. Each one of us unique, each one of us different. Some of us with rougher edges than others. Each one of us uniquely beautiful. Some of us more beautiful than others. But when we're together, that's how we're meant to be. When we're together, we form something so much bigger than what we are as individuals. So what I want you to do is to take that postcard home. And put it on your fridge, put it on your car dashboard, put it on, in your Bible, put it by your bedside. Put it where you will see it and be reminded that together we're a beach. Together we're so much more effective. Together we're so much more visible than just as individuals. But God made us as individuals, but he built us to be together as the church. We'll all be different. We'll all be unique, but together we can be used by God to build something beautiful. And whether it's through discipleship, whether it's social transformation, whether it's theological education, and we don't know. It may well be that as God works in you, he calls you to ordain ministry in the Episcopal Church. Our God is a God of miracles. And I believe that God might call some of you to ordain ministry in the Episcopal Church. Because if we're going to change the church in Scotland, it will need people like you to become leaders in the church in Scotland. And our hope is that, having been called, you will then start to plant new churches and be part of new, growing, lively, relevant, attractive Churches that make a difference in their society, make a difference in their communities, because God is making a difference in you. That's the vision that God has given us as a church.